Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So it kind of looks like a pepperoni pizza. It's about that size. And you imagine the pepperonis are the little corals there. Around the world, coral reefs are rapidly being destroyed by a combination of overfishing, local pollutants, and rising sea temperatures due to climate change. When you consider that nearly 25% of all fish spend at least part of their lifetime in the reefs, and that the reefs support coastal tourism in various ways, you can start to understand the scale of this loss. And there's more. Hurricane Irma, which was in 2017, had 25-foot waves hitting the Florida reef track. We had a storm surge at our building of only five foot. So if we didn't have a reef system there or a healthy reef system there, you can imagine that that storm surge and those waves would really decimate the land. Sarah Hamlin is a biologist at the Moat Marine Laboratory. She's devoted to coral reef restoration. She helps maintain 21 species of stony and branching coral and splits her time between the Lou Key Reef and her land base on Summerland Key in South Florida. 
It's amazing. You're like an underwater gardener. That's exactly what we are. We are underwater gardeners. Her lab uses a process called microfragmentation and fusion, and its impact on underwater wildlife is anything but tiny. My name's Sarah Hamlin. I'm a scientist at Moat Marine Lab in Florida, and my solvable is regrowing coral reefs 40 to 50 times the speed that coral grows in the wild. There's a number of reasons why coral reef is really important. I mean, who doesn't love going out snorkeling and seeing colourful reefs teeming with beautiful fish? But they also provide us with goods and services, whether that be tourism or employment, the food on our table. And for Florida alone, our reef system here is estimated to be worth about $8 billion. Not only that, but these reefs protect our land and our property from things like storm surge. So a really good example of this is Hurricane Irma, which was in 2017, had 25-foot waves hitting the Florida reef track down in Lou Key, where I am. And we had a storm surge at our building, which is in Summerlin Key, of only five foot. So if we didn't have a reef system there or a healthy reef system there, you can imagine that that storm surge and those waves would really decimate the land. Yeah. So I I can hear your Australian accent. Australia, (laughs) of course, is famous for the Great Barrier Reef. What's going on with climate change and coral reefs around the world? Worldwide, we're seeing a great reduction in live coral cover. Um, So this is across the world, whether it be Australia, the United States, or any of our Pacific or Caribbean island nations. You might have heard of coral reefs as the rainforests of the sea. And that That saying is because even though coral reefs take up less than 1% of the seafloor, around 25% of all known marine species actually rely on coral reefs at some stage of their life. Um, We're seeing warmer oceanic temperatures, we're seeing a lot more pollution going into the oceans, and this is resulting in loss of live coral tissue. Almost as much as any consequence of climate change I can think of, The people who are really in contact with this are shocked and appalled and upset at a level that those of us who don't come into coral on a into contact with coral on a daily basis, I think don't really get. I mean, I have you're you're in the Florida Keys. I have a nephew who's uh, into uh, skin diving and spearfishing in Miami, and he's a young guy. And just in the years he's been doing this. The coral around Miami, I mean, he's like shocked and upset when he sees it and says he can't really fish anymore just because of the change in the last decade. We have lost around 90% of our coral cover in the last 40 or 50 years. And some of the reefs in the Keys now or the Florida Reef Tract are as low as um, between 4 and 6% stony coral cover, which is quite low. Sarah, we're talking on Zoom and you have a fantastic backdrop of coral and I don't know enough about coral to know what kind it is, but we hear these terms like staghorn coral, and I heard of elkhorn coral. What are the main forms of coral that you're working with, and what do they look like? We have branching corals, and we have massive corals. So branching corals are the staghorns and the elkhorns, and you... If you can picture what the antlers of a staghorn or an elkhorn look like, they look exactly like that. So skinnier branches... Uh, really perfect three-dimensional habitat for fish and shrimp and all the little reef critters out there. And then we've got our massive corals. And these might be brain corals, which essentially look like the folds and grooves of a brain. Star corals, which have uh, their polyps are like little cups or little stars. 
And they're our reef-building corals. They're the corals that are accreting um, the reefs and really growing that larger reef structure that is remains stable after storms. Your lab, as I understand it, is working to restore coral that's dying through a process that's called microfragmentation and fusion. And that sounds cool. So could you please explain that? Yeah. So at Moat Marine Labs, essentially what we do is we call we call this microfragmentation and reskinning. So we take a larger parent colony of coral and we cut it into very small pieces. We're talking one polyp or around one centimeter squared. And this process where we cut the coral, we abrade the tissue and remove excess skeleton really promotes incredibly accelerated tissue growth in these new fragments. So we liken to this as like when you cut your skin, your body works overtime to really rapidly heal that cut that you've created. So when we raise these tiny microfragments, we raise them by the thousands and we raise them with their genetic clones, which are corals that have exactly the same DNA. So they came from the same parent colony. And they will be raised on land at Moat Marine Lab here for up to a year. And then after that, they've basically filled out their substrate, which is what we call a plug. And they're about seven square centimetres. We then take those individual corals out onto the reef into the lower Florida Keys and we plant or attach them in really tight clusters with their genetic clones. So it kind of looks like a pepperoni pizza. It's about that size. (laughs) And you imagine the pepperonis are the little corals there. And those corals still continue to grow really rapidly onto the reef. They recognize their clones and they fuse together to form one large colony. And that's what we call reskinning. So because coral becomes sexually mature based on size uh, and not how old they are, by strategically outplanting these with their clones and having them grow really rapidly, we're able to grow corals to reproductive size in only a few short years. And that's compared to them typically taking decades for wild colonies. So you're kind of blowing my mind here. I mean, I didn't even know that coral reproduced sexually. I thought it just grew. Well, it doesn't only reproduce sexually. The process of microfragmentation is actually an asexual reproduction. So by cutting smaller pieces and having it grow, there's nothing sexual about that. Um, some corals out on the reef naturally produce both sexually and asexually. So staghorn coral, for example, when storms come through, it breaks into smaller pieces, which get scattered around the reef and get lodged into different places. And they'll continue to grow out as an absolute genetic clone of the piece of coral that they broke from. I thought the reason this was such a problem or what, what the main reason is that it grows so slowly and it's being destroyed so quickly. So does this method, this microfragmentation method, help you uh, grow it more at the speed we're losing it? That is, and what are the comparative speeds? I mean, how fast is it dying off and how fast can it be replaced through this method? So the process of microfragmentation, uh, we estimate that we're able to regrow coral reefs 40 to 50 times faster than the speed coral grows in the wild. And how long is that? So let's say we microfragment coral, we hold it in our land-based facility for 12 months, we put it on the reef, it takes one to two years to fuse together and be sexually mature. So we're looking at three years. A wild larvae that settles on the reef takes 40 to 50 or even longer to get to a sexually mature size. Wow. So I have a lot of questions about this. Um, First of all, when you seed the coral in this way through microfragmentation, 
is the coral that grows more resilient to climate change or is it just the same coral and will be afflicted in the same way by what's going on? If we were to just be refragmenting and fragmenting the same coral over and over again, we'd essentially be putting a monoculture of coral out there, coral that is potentially susceptible to the next disease that comes through or um, future climate conditions. So that's a really good question. And one thing that Moat prides itself on is the fact that we are uh, able to settle and spawn larvae of our own. So we're able to collect gametes from wild coral and coral grown in the lab, which increases our genetic diversity. So we can make some thoughtful crosses between those coral. And the more genotypes you have, the more inherent resilience you have in a population. Will this work anywhere in the world or is this method specific to the kind of coral you've got down there in Florida? We hold about 21 species and we've tried this on a dozen species and it does work. So we've proved that it's work. it works here. Now, people in the Caribbean are also uh, starting to microfragment and grow coral out and it's working for them as well. In other countries, so in Pacific nations, I believe the process of microfragmentation and restoration is known. But if we consider the Great Barrier Reef, for example, the reef itself is in a little bit better condition there still. So they're working a lot with larval dispersal. So they will collect larvae and reseed the reef. They're not at the point that the Florida reef tract is at the moment with degradation. But there's nothing to say that this process isn't going to work with all the other species of coral um, in the world. With these different approaches to coral restoration, is there competition among them? And do you have to fight to kind of be the leading approach to coral restoration? No, I mean, absolutely not. So there's a lot of coral restoration practitioners out there, and we have really good relationships with them all. We offer our facility at Moat Marine Lab um, is open for collaboration. So we invite other scientists to come in and do research on our corals. We use our boats to take people out and outplant who are researching corals in non-COVID times, of course. Uh, we head to conferences and presentations delivered by scientists from around the world and really share our knowledge. This, this problem's too big to make it a business. We really need to be working together. And it's awesome to see so many practitioners from all over the world really being in contact with each other to further the science behind restoration. Tell me about the first time you planted coral. The first time I planted coral, it was great. I felt really accomplished, like what I'm doing is actually making a difference. But the coolest part about that was not actually planting that coral, but it was going back a year later and seeing just how much that coral had grown, double its size, it had actually sent branches up. So it started to create that beautiful 3D structure. Another cool experience I've had really recently, which is, I think, something I'm going to remember for the rest of my life, was going out and watching some restored coral of ours actually spawn. And this is an endangered species that we outplanted, it fused together and it started spawning. And I'm not going to lie, I had tears in my mask. It was the most heartwarming, wonderful experience that I hope everyone can experience seeing coral spawn and seeing a healthy reef because for me, it was life-changing. Since few of us probably will ever see coral spawn, what does it look like? What did you see? So I was swimming past this coral, not knowing if it was going to spawn or not. And I shone my little red torch on it and I saw these 
lumps that I didn't expect to see, which was the gamete bundles, the eggs and the sperm, which looked like little pink circles in the coral polyp, the coral mouth. And then about 15 minutes later, all at once, the entire colony let those gamete bundles go and they floated up towards the sea surface and all the fish came in to have a little bit of a feed as well. And it was just beautiful to see just nature working. It's amazing. You're like an underwater gardener. That's exactly what we are. We are underwater gardeners. Can you give me some sense of what it costs to do this? And assuming this really works, what does it cost to save the coral of the world? I mean, using a process like this. I guess the first question would be to ask you, what's it going to cost if we don't save the coral reefs? A a lot more, I assume. But I'll back that up now. Um, So we tend to say that our coral that we grow in the field, so these are our fast-growing staghorn corals, when we take into account uh, staff time, boat time, outplanting and cost of equipment, it's about $20 per coral. And when we look at the coral that we grow in our land facility, it's a little more expensive the brain, boulder and star corals that are the real reef building corals. And that's around $50 to $80 per coral. So it's not cheap to restore the reefs, but it's very expensive if we lose the reefs. Yeah. Now, water is continuing to get warmer and warmer year by year. Does this process change if you project the consequences of climate change further decades into the future and and water temperatures are higher than they are now? Absolutely. So what we do at Moat is really drive our restoration by a solid foundation of science. So we really are looking into corals that are more resilient to future conditions and upscaling production of these corals and using these corals out on the reef. We end the show by asking if there are things that our listeners can do to help with the problem. What's something that people who are worried about the loss and bleaching of coral reefs can do? Locally, what we do actually has an additive or an amplifying effect on our local reefs. So I'm sure people have heard of the old saying, reduce, reuse, recycle, and that actually still stands true today. So we can reduce our overconsumption, maybe our carbon footprints through shopping locally for produce, maybe growing your own food if you have an, like the opportunity to do that. I would also ask people to consider the pollutants that we're putting down the drain or putting onto our lawns. So thinking about greener alternatives to cleaning products. If you're going to use fertilizers, use a slow release fertilizer and don't use it in the rainy season. And that's going to go a long way in really keeping all of our watersheds cleaner. If you're eating fish, maybe consider eating fish from more sustainable sources because overfishing and destructive fishing practices are really going to affect the health of coral reefs. There's, there are actually easy-to-navigate websites like Fishwatch, um, which can help people work out that the fish they're eating does come from a sustainable source. And really understanding that we as individuals can make a difference. Sarah Hamlin is a biologist at the Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration on Summerlin Key. Remember to check out our show notes for links to the suggestions for ways that you can help slow the destruction of coral reefs around the world. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our show is produced by Camille Baptista. Senior producer, Jocelyn Frank. Catherine Girardot is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks to Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, and Khadija Holland. I'm Jacob Weisberg.
Wow. After talking to you, Sarah, the only thing I want to do is go snorkeling. <laughs> you definitely should. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.